Hello, everyone. My name is Robert Winfrey, and what you're about to listen to is a re-airing of an old podcast I used to host called Everyone Loves a Bad Guy. This particular episode had an, uh, it originally aired on November 14th, 2014, and I think that's important as a brief note because it talks professional wrestling, and it cuts so it cuts off there. That I mean, I can't talk about what uh, had yet to happen. Um, this is the last bit of my look at the world of professional wrestling for that particular podcast. Uh, it covered a lot of material. Some talent got their own individual episodes. Certain promotions got their own episodes. Time periods in the WWE, etc. And the finale covers from 2009, give or take, right around WrestleMania 25 to the contemporary, at the time, 2014. And I was a lot kinder to that time period at that when I did this show originally than I would be now. Uh, just by way of uh, full disclosure, there was a, there was a, a storyline around this time. Uh, it was centered around a group called The Authority, which featured among other players, Triple H, his wife, Stephanie McMahon, Seth Rollins, Kane, um, a couple of Stooges, uh, Jamie Noble and Joey Mercury, and others. And that angle was so bad and went on for so long, it literally made me stop watching professional wrestling. Now, I don't think it had quite gotten to that point when I recorded this show, because I'm still a little bit more positive on things. But, yeah, um, it, it really did drive me away from the genre for quite some time. Um, I mean, I, as I record this particular intro on January 26th, 2022... I cover professional wrestling for 411mania.com on a consistent basis, and to be perfectly candid, I wouldn't watch it if I wasn't covering it. Um, that run with the Authority permanently to this day soured me on Seth Rollins as a character. As a worker, he's still exceptional when he chooses to be. It, I'd already been done with Impact slash TNA um, for a little bit of time at this point. Um, Ring of Honor had kind of surpassed, uh, was on the decline. Obviously, we continue to decline over time. Uh, but, yeah, I, I'm a lot kinder to this time period when I did this originally than I would be today if I were to revisit it. So, it is just me. Uh, due to a scheduling issue that I go over a little bit at the beginning of the podcast, uh, no one was able to join me, so it's just my ramblings. But there's some... That time period in professional wrestling, especially for the WWE, did have some interesting enough characters. Uh, there was stuff that was worth talking about over that period of time. So, yeah, there's that. Um, let's see. As we get into the show proper, please do interact with the product somehow. Like, comment, subscribe, star rating, written review, a share to people you know, be that digitally or in person. That all helps a lot. We also have a couple of sponsors for these uh, shows. Let's start with Grammarly. 
For you listeners of the W2M Network, Grammarly is offering a free download of the Grammarly software. Grammarly's AI-powered products help people communicate more effectively. Grammarly helps you, you, write mistake-free on Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and nearly anywhere else you write on the web. Grammarly corrects hundreds of grammar, punctuation, and spelling mistakes while also catching contextual errors, improving your vocabulary, and suggesting style improvements. To download Grammarly today, go to getgrammarly.com slash W2M Network. Again, that is getgrammarly.com slash W2M Network. Or click the link below in the description. There will be one down there. Our other link, not link, our other sponsor, Amazon Music. We are giving away a free 30 days of Amazon Music Unlimited. All 70 plus million songs and podcasts and whatnot that they have over there, you can have access to it for free. Not a dime out of pocket. Go to getamazonmusic.com slash W2M Network, or just click the link in the description below, and that will take you over there. Fill out the little form that says we sent you, and you will have 30 days of access to everything on Amazon Music. It is great. It's a great service. Uh, give it a listen. You know, You have nothing to lose at the end of 30 days if you like it, you can start paying for it. If not, you lost nothing. In fact, you got a free 30 days of great music. No muss, no fuss. Uh, that's it. And thank you to anyone who is using those services. Thank you to those two services for sponsoring the podcast over here. All right. That's it for me here. Sending it back to myself in 2014. Past me. It's all on you, buddy. Halloween evening, 
with the doorbell and the dogs that bark at everything. And just as thematically awesome as it would have been, it was too much trouble. And then last week, well, the UFC decided to host a fight night Saturday afternoon in Australia, which means Friday primetime here in the States. So I did that instead of this because it's part of my obligation. That's what I do. My primary thing over at 411mania.com in the MMA section is I cover live events. But three weeks, far too long. I'm back. I'm ready to go. Thank you all so much for being here. This, uh, I can't stress to you how much I appreciate the fact that all of you guys are out there. You've got all these choices for on-demand audio, and you're listening to a little thing that I do. I appreciate it. They really aren't worth All right. Tonight, we are going to wrap up my extensive look into the world of professional wrestling. It's been several weeks. Uh, that I've been doing this, and again, we're going back a ways now because, of again, sometimes I wound up skipping weeks. Uh, I took a week off in the middle to talk about Breaking Bad because Breaking Bad is awesome and I hadn't had a chance to get around to it yet, and it just won all those Emmys, so why the heck not? But we're wrapping it up this week. We started off, uh, again, several months back with a look at professional wrestling in the territories uh, way back in the 70s, uh, 50s, 60s, and 70s kind of time frame. And we've gone all the way up to now, contemporary professional wrestling. Tonight we're just talking about world wrestling entertainment. I don't wish to discuss uh, Total Nonstop Action, also known as TNA. I could, they could get their own show, but I don't want it. They're an interesting promotion, a lot of history, a lot of fun stuff to talk about, but not today, not right now, maybe in the near future. But we are going to be discussing professional wrestling again, WWE, if you're looking for a time frame, uh, the last show I did talking about professional wrestling covered a pretty important transition era from the end of the Attitude Era through kind of the ruthless aggression stuff, which was funny, all the way up to, I believe, WrestleMania 25 was where I drew that particular line. And so uh, t- for the purposes of if you want a timeline, it's going to be WrestleMania 25 to now. And the reason I don't feel the need to discuss a whole lot of the timeline is there's a lot of the same players. A lot of, uh, I don't want to call it stagnation. I really don't, because I don't feel that's accurate. But a lot of familiar faces have been in uh, professional wrestling, especially the WWE, over the past six years, give or take. And that's not really, when we consider some of the time frames that we've been discussing here, that's not a long period of time, Uh, again, all things considered. I mean, we we covered the entirety of ECW, which was, I think, less than six years in its entire existence. And then we also covered a huge chunk of time for uh, WCW slash Jim Crocker promotion. So six years, not a whole lot of time. Not a lot of things have developed. But that's the era I want to talk about. I also want to have a bit of a abstract kind of discussion a little bit here about what it takes to be a successful bad guy in the world of professional wrestling nowadays. And that's... It, there are some obstacles if you want to be a bad guy in this particular wrestling climate, but it's far from impossible to do, and I want to talk a little bit about that. Maybe look at who's going to be the next one. If we're going to, if you want to make a prediction about the next great professional wrestling heel, uh, this will be a forum to do so. So any of that stuff, if you would like to call in, I'll go ahead and throw out the number for this one. The number is 323-657-0901. Once again, 323-657-0901. If you would like to call in using Skype, you have to be on the Blog Talk page. There's a Skype icon at the top of the player. You click that. You click through some dialog boxes. It brings you up here. 
All right, we're going to pick up kind of in the aftermath of WrestleMania 25, a little bit going forward there. We get from this, uh, you know, five- to six-year stretch, we get some really interesting heel action going on. Some of it good, some of it uh, not so good, but if we're going to go kind of via chronology here, actually we get... I want to make sure I have the timing of this right, but I do believe following 25, we get a really, really awesome heel character uh, portrayed by now movie star Dave Batista that we all kind of refer to as Douchebag Dave, where he becomes jealous of John Cena's success. He wants the spotlight all to himself. He uh, and this Actually, the re- one of the reasons it works, first of all, I imagine there's a fair amount of Batista's actual personality within that particular character, just amped up the appropriate level to be on national television. And there's all, the parallels between Cena and Batista are pretty substantial. They both rose at about the same time they both peaked in terms of getting their first kind of breaks at WrestleMania 21. They were the two main events for the two major titles. Both Cena and Batista went over. And Batista wound up fizzling out a little bit after that while Cena continued to just kind of, you know, soar higher and higher and higher and eventually got to the position he is now where he's pretty much it. But, again, douchebag Dave Batista with kind of the skinny jeans and the leather jacket and the shades and having a personal spotlight was such a great, great character. I mean, anyone who's that egocentric, and Batista, never a great orator, but his mic work as this character was pretty good. He was able to get over who he was, why he felt this way, uh, why he felt superior to all of us, why, I mean, just everything you need for a, a really interesting heel to kind of get over and to make people think. He was doing all that stuff, and he feuded with Cena. He had another couple of feuds thrown in there. I think I forget which ones, but again, primarily it was with Cena. And this was his kind of swan song gimmick for his first uh, trip away from professional wrestling. He uh, wound up losing a last man standing match to John Cena. It was either that or the I Quit match. And my chronology is going to be off here because I wasn't paying a whole lot of attention to the product at the time. It was one of my not as interesting, interested stretches for what uh, the WWE was doing. But he lost a last man standing match when Cena duct taped his feet together around a ring post, and by definition, he couldn't actually stand. Uh, he wound up uh, quitting. It was actually a real, his promo about leaving is really awesome because he's overblown up. He's got the soft neck brace on, uh, the oh, the arm in the sling, you know, wheelchair. I mean, just all the great kind of overblown stuff you expect from a heel under those particular circumstances. And he's in the ring, and he starts off, and, and most people, especially if you're on the internet, you knew he was done. And apparently the crowd they were in front of was aware of this. He gets out, and he starts into the typical heel. He had was better that night, but it was just once. I'm going to come back. I'm going to give him what for, and the people are booing him. And he goes off on the crowd a little bit and concludes that with, well, screw you, I quit. And we got a little bit of that same character back when he returned uh, last year. I mean, initially he was supposed to come back kind of as the conquering hero, was the thinking, and the crowd roundly, universally rejected him. And if you listen to him, he predicted that a little bit. And, you know, Batista's not a stupid man. There's a good chance he might have foreseen a few problems. So after a little bit of trying to pander to the fans and being just dead out of shape, he sucks it up 
goes back to being he doesn't ally himself with uh, you know Triple H or Randy Orton. I don't think they had quite formed the gimmick now known as the Authority at that point in time. Not in this current iteration, at least. I mean, Triple H and Stephanie were running the show, of course, but uh, corporate Kane was a little on again, off again. You didn't have the Stooges, and Batista was just just great as a bad guy in those scenarios. Uh, and when they moved on to the Evolution versus the Shield stuff, again, he was great at just kind of want. I mean, he was allied with them because they had a common enemy in the Shield, not because he liked them. And he was constantly making snide remarks about, you know, this is what I came back from, you know, a movie career for this. And then, of course, Guardians of the Galaxy blew up. The box office world became just a great movie in general. Now he's actually in demand and he's unlikely to be back. But his final little bit there, when he just got to tap back into that inner, a little bit smarmy douchebag, was just a really great... I mean, that that's the character that I feel he should be best remembered for. His slow burn to being a face against Triple H and being just uh, the animal uh, leading into 21 and immediately after WrestleMania 21, there was a lot of good stuff there, and the crowd was... If you weren't a fan at that point in time, it might not make a lot of sense when I talk about how over he was, but man, he was over. People everywhere wanted to see him. Now granted, Triple H had done such an effective job of being the heel that everyone wanted to see dethroned that he anyone would have done it, but the crowd was really behind Batista. Triple H went out of his way to make Batista look great in the ring. I mean, he it's just sad that he wasn't able to kind of really capitalize on that momentum, keep it going, uh, some unfortunate injuries, moving him to SmackDown, a lot of reasons. But, again, his run as you know, kind of movie star Hollywood douchebag was just great stuff from uh, Batista. And, I mean, a perfect heel in all the right ways. If you, as a fan, just, you didn't like him, you didn't want to listen to him, you wanted to see him get what was coming to him. And if you're a bad guy, that's your job. You're supposed to feel that way. As an audience, you're supposed to feel that way about the villains. You want people to shut up. I mean, we fans of wrestling, especially kind of contemporary, are aware of the uh, split reaction that John Cena gets. He was getting, uh, again, Batista as Douchebag Dave got pretty much universal heat. You know, he did, There weren't nearly the same volume of boo-yay punches when... Uh, the famous, you know, cheer and then boo segment when they're trading punches that involves John Cena. You know, he just, he had enough personality, enough character, and enough, uh, you know, I hate to say heat because in uh, contemporary wrestling that it doesn't mean the same thing that it used to. But he had enough of it that people were focused on him and John Cena, not just John Cena, which is a, a large part of the problem nowadays in wrestling is everything's about John Cena. And uh, I want to get to John Cena specifically in a little bit, so I'm going to put a pin in that right now and we'll get there. Because his case is so interesting in a lot of ways. It's a very unique kind of case study for fans of professional wrestling. Um, but All right. Who else have I really enjoyed kind of within that time frame as a heel? Uh, oh, Daniel Bryan. Uh, actually, you know, I, I should start this off by discussing the Nexus. As a group... Um, for those of you unfamiliar with the you know, with kind of the basics of this, uh, the group that became known as Nexus was a stable of everyone involved with the first season 
of the reality competition type thing that they did for NXT. Now, that particular name has since been co-opted into their develop, entire developmental program, uh, running consistently great wrestling shows, uh, which you have to watch. You have to own the net, WWE Network to watch them, but some of the best stuff going on is going on on that particular program. Uh, absolutely worth checking out. But the first season, it was done in kind of a tough enough style reality competition. They had stuff they were supposed to do. They would air it. It had its own special. And, I mean, the presentation wasn't very good, but they debuted that group as a unit, one of the most effective and impressive group debuts that WWE has ever done. Uh, I mean, they did it better, and they kept the momentum better with the Shield, but the side of that group, which consists of the man now known as Ryback, Wade Barrett, Daniel Bryan, uh, Michael Tarver, Darren Young, I'm forgetting getting uh, Justin Gabriel, Heath Slater. I still feel there's somebody I'm forgetting in that group, but there was I think there was like one other guy. But they debuted, they interrupted a match between uh, CM Punk and John Cena. I believe Punk was wearing the mask at this point uh, because he'd been shaved bald uh, during a feud with the Big Show right after his Straight Edge Society thing on SmackDown, which is another great thing that I'll talk about in just a minute. And they debuted, they beat everyone down, they tore apart the ringside area, they turned over everything, they dismantled part of the ring, they pulled up the canvas, they took down the turnbuckles. I mean, just all kinds of chaos. Uh, they all beat up John Cena, which is par for the course, in a circumstance like that, everybody gets to beat up John Cena. And they then, uh, I don't even think they ended it with a promo. I mean, the big news kind of coming out of that whole thing was, there was a scene, a uh, sequence on the floor where Daniel Bryan used uh, the tie of Justin Roberts to choke him, and ligature strangulation was apparently a no-no for a TV PG product, and I, I understand that, you know, it's, uh, ligature strangulation is not a fun, uh, to the general public, I mean, hey, if you're into it, you know, autoerotic asphyxiation is a thing, just be safe, uh, but for a television, for a TV PG-rated product, you know, kind of a no-no. He proceeded to then spit on John Cena in the ring before kicking him in the head, and that was another no-no. And they wound up releasing him. He came back a month or so later at Survivor Series. But uh, as a group, I mean, you had a bunch of theoretical rookies here, and they just, I mean, they demolished everything in front of them for, I mean, weeks building up to their Survivor Series match. They came out the next night and were forced to apologize. They ran roughshod over everyone. I mean, there was even a, a really great ending to one of the episodes of Raw where uh, Vince McMahon came out and kind of took credit for their existence, and they disliked that. Uh, David Otunga. That's the other guy I was forgetting. David Otunga. I knew it. I, I remembered. Took my mind a minute. But uh, they all just... Uh, they So they threw Vince McMahon. I mean, Justin Gabriel hit the 450 splash on 70-something-year-old Vince McMahon. I mean, it, if you're standing on top turnbuckle looking down at the owner of – I mean, not the actual owner, but the CEO and chairman of the board for your company, and you're about to do a 450 splash, I imagine the last thing that goes through your head is, please, God, don't let me slip because he's old and I might kill him and I will never live that down. Uh, I mean, it worked fine. You know, you don't get to be able to do a move like that in that company if you aren't able to do it consistently and prove you can do it consistently safely. 
Uh, Gabriel has a great 450 splash, very safe with the way he does it. And but just as a group, they had so much steam kind of behind them. They were doing so well. They were winning matches and as teams. They were terrorizing the locker room, the entire roster. I mean, uh, there was actually a really great uh, moment. Um, Sheamus at that time was WWE champion. He beat John Cena for it uh, in uh, certainly an upset, but they were giving Sheamus a chance to kind of run with the belt for a little bit. And there's a backstage interaction between Sheamus and Arn Anderson. Now, I will say this. Anyone trying to talk with Arn Anderson, that's a little rough. Arn, absolutely one of the best talkers in the history of professional wrestling. And he, and now Sheamus, of course, came off a bit. One And again, Sheamus is not a bad promo by any stretch. I mean, he's not great, but he's certainly not bad. But he's trying to explain that the only thing he cares about is being champion and nothing else matters. And Arn Anderson just kind of looks at him, shakes his head, and goes, you don't get it, do you? Right now you feel like you're the big fish, but, uh, you know, if you don't do something about those Nexus guys, you're going to wind up being a great white shark in a small little pond, and you're going to suffocate. And Seamus kind of blew him off. There was a great moment to close that episode out where he realized he's all alone. He winds up running from the entirety of Nexus. Uh, There was a lot of great, great stuff from that particular group. And then they cut the legs out from under them at Survivor Series. Uh, For those of you who don't know, this is considered kind of one of the big gaffes as well as far as uh, professional wrestling booking goes. Survivor Series, John Cena has a team. It's uh, himself, Chris Jericho, Edge. I'm forgetting somebody. I want to say like Big Show. I could be wrong about that. Uh, but there's one other guy, and then they have the mystery partner that winds up being a returning Daniel Bryan, which is awesome because Daniel Bryan's awesome. Taking on the Nexus group, and the Nexus functions better as a unit. They generally are winning, and then because Cena has to overcome the odds, it's down to him two-on-one. I think it was like Barrett and Otunga were the last two. Uh, they eliminated Daniel Bryan, but during the course of this uh, match, John Cena takes a DDT outside on the concrete. Not the mats, mind you. They actually went through the Wade Barrett went through the effort to pull up the mats and drop Cena on his head on the concrete, and he still kicks out at two. He uh, then beats both of those guys because Cena has to overcome the odds. Ugh. And it, it was a horrible decision. Pretty much everyone has acknowledged it's a horrible decision, and like universally. They came out the next night. They kind of regained a little bit of their heat, but uh, they wound up kicking Darren Young out of the group which was fine. Darren Young's not all that spectacular, but it just kind of slowly lost steam. It lost interest. They wound up splitting it into two groups with CM Punk leading one of the factions and Barrett leading the other. And it just, I mean, the whole thing kind of lost all of its momentum. It fell apart at the seams. It was a horrible waste of CM Punk to have him lead this kind of new Nexus group. It was a horrible waste. I mean, he didn't really want to be there. It didn't make a whole lot of sense for him to be there. Uh, they, I forget how exactly they divided the group, but this got us also the debuts of Husky Harris and Mason Ryan, and Husky Harris would uh, famously be repackaged after that whole thing didn't quite work out, and now he's Bray Wyatt and doing all kinds of uh, fun stuff with that particular gimmick. And uh, But uh, it, it just, as a group, it wasn't quite the same. It didn't work, which is actually in stark contrast to what Punk was doing immediately before that. He was... Primarily on SmackDown at the time, and everyone felt that SmackDown was the second-tier product, so you could do kind of whatever you wanted. And Punk was doing 
not just the straight edge gimmick, but he was really tapping into a lot of Christian kind of iconography. Uh, he grew his hair and beard out. He had the followers who he referred. Uh, he had a couple of followers, specifically Luke Gallows. Um, he had a different name. No, no, Luke Gallows. Sorry, he had a different name in TNA. And he had a guy. I forget the name of the chick who was with him. And Joey Mercury was there. And he referred to them by their first. He like so he was choosing people to kind of be associated with him whose names were similar to were you know those of the original apostles. He had. Not just the long hair, but he, you know, kind of had it greased down and it parted down the middle. It very much designed to evoke the image of Christ with his appearance. And he got some pretty, he had some pretty serious heat going for a while there. There's, I mean, famously, uh, the lady at a house show who uh, just wound up being recorded, who got very verbally uh, into it with him. You're not, you're not a savior. How do you possibly think that? All that kind of fun stuff and he had a some really great promos leading into a feud with Rey Mysterio. Uh I mean some of it didn't quite some of that feud didn't quite uh work out as well as it could have, but uh he had some great promo work. He had a lot of heat then he lost his hair to the big show, I think it was. Uh, I think that's the guy he lost uh no no it was Ray. I think he lost a hair versus mask match and he had the whole thing prior uh going on where he would call people from the crowd into the ring, and they would get their heads shaved and uh, pledge allegiance to the Straight Edge Society. I mean, him as a uh, CM Punk as a cult leader had a lot of great mileage behind it, and it's just a real kind of shame that he was doing it on a show that no one cared—not that no one watched, mind you—but that within the company, no one really cared about. No one was willing to kind of capitalize on what he was doing because he did some really good stuff at that point in time. I mean, he wound up doing great stuff later on as well when he was uh, champion and Paul Heyman was in his corner and he was uh, working on, he would go out and he would talk about how many days he'd been champion. It wound up being like 434 days before he lost it to The Rock. But his promos at that time about being underappreciated and you know how long he'd been champion. He even had a great line in one of them when he talked about the exact day that it would be, the date... Uh, the month, the year, that would be signal his surpassing the all-time lo- single longest title reign. And that, that of course, is Bruno San Martino's, and I believe it was his second reign that lasted something like nine years. Uh, but, you know, different times. But he, the fact that he had bothered to do the math on that and figure out precisely, no, it will be you know, November 24th in 2026, when I will surpass Bruno San Martino's man. I mean, and he and Paul Heyman had a really fun dynamic in that neither of them needed each other. Both of them great on the mic on their own, but the kind of chemistry they had together was really fun, really interesting to watch. I mean, I forget the uh, comparison that Paul Heyman made out on some podcast, I believe he was asked, uh, you know, what it was, you know, what, uh, to you kind of make a comparison with him. No, it was his second interview with Ariel Helwani on the MMA Hour when he brought up that he felt like uh, that time with CM Punk was akin to, I think it was a musical reference he made. I tend to think of them along the Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis lines in that both Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis were tremendously talented professionals on their own. Put them together and you had some, and they were able to, they didn't try to outshine each other it was just kind of the magic chemistry they had together, and I thought they had that same kind of vibe where 
individually they're both great, but together they're not lesser than they're uh, they don't detract from each other. And Punk during that time frame was he was great as a heel. I mean, he was smarmy, he was smug, he was selfish, he was self-absorbed. He was again all the things you need to be to be a great heel and he got some pretty serious evil reactions and then I mean there was also his loose association with the shield and that Paul Heyman was kind of paying them to help him out but Punk is a heel at that point in time I mean he wound up going face uh, becoming a good guy a little bit later to feud with Heyman and Brock Lesnar and Triple H a little bit but during his during that period in time when he was a bad guy he had some pretty serious animosity built up by the crowd I mean they did not care much for him and that's his job. That's what he's supposed to do. Uh, let's see. Who? Oh, I wanted to talk about uh, Daniel Bryan a little bit during his being a horrible boyfriend to AJ Lee, which I, eh, I don't care for AJ Lee. I, I really don't, but that's just me. But uh, he was world heavyweight champion, and he was sneaking out victories by the skin of his teeth, by count out, by disqualification, by fluky means, and then he would celebrate. This is actually the genesis of the whole yes thing was – he would score these unimpressive victories over, like, the Big Show or Mark Henry. He would get some kind of a technical win and then celebrate with the, you know, the big yes chant and the arms going and just, like, he had accomplished some monumental feat. I mean, because a classic, you know, we all know people who overreact in joy and celebration when they accomplish something completely menial. Well, they don't actually accomplish anything, but they just feel like celebrating and trying to rub your face in it. And that was what he was at that point in time. He tapped into that particular bit of energy, and people just... I mean, if you watch him during that point in time, whether he's doing yes or no, and he started doing no because people started doing yes with him, they will play off of each other. He And granted, on the one hand, uh, you know, group dynamics and crowd psychology, they want to do stuff, they want to feel like they're part of the show... But they were actually involved in what he was doing. So when he would try and chant yes and be happy about something, they would chant no back at him. If he's doing the no thing, they're doing the yes thing. It's a great bit of crowd interaction. And you know what he was doing at that point in time is that kind of cowardly. I mean, we haven't seen a real kind of cowardly champion in a while as far as uh, WWE goes. And he hit that. He hit that right to a T, and it was great, and it was fun and he was still having some fun matches i mean the elimination chamber match that he featured in leading into wrestlemania oh i 26 i think in miami i think it was 26 um but there was that uh, they were doing the elimination chamber match prior to that and the last guy the last two guys in the chamber are daniel bryan and santino morella and bryan is such a such a professional such a great performer that Santino gets a couple of near falls and that place comes unglued thinking he he's won. He, uh, I think he hits a small package that gets a pretty big pop out of the crowd. He hits the Cobra and Brian kicks out at a long two count and the crowd is just with them and they're just, they want him to lose. He's had a good match to that point. That's a fun match anyway, but he got Santino Morella career comedy act over as potentially dethroning him for the World Heavyweight Championship. I mean, it, it's amazing stuff. Uh, he went on to lo- famously lose the title in 18 seconds and the opening match of that WrestleMania, which kind of gave spawn to the whole yes movement and people wanting him to get his due. And he was, I mean, he was officially a good guy not too long after that, but that whole night uh, just kind of cemented his status 
and his underdog chase the last couple of years. Great stuff. And personally speaking, I wish him the, a speedy recovery. And if he's able to continue wrestling safely, then I would be happy about that. If not, uh, he still had some great stuff towards the end there. All right. Uh, briefly, I feel like discussing the Shield because I don't feel there's been a better booked group Arguably in the history of the WWE, the WWE is not great at booking groups or factions. Uh, I mean, it, which is not to say they haven't had, you know, again, they've had some pretty strong groups in there, uh, Evolution, Degeneration X, the Nation of Domination, but it's not a strength of that promotion, historically speaking, to have groups of people. You have loose alliances. I mean, Bobby Heenan had a bunch of iterations of the Heenan family. Uh, again, you have people who are maybe kind of loosely aligned via common goals, but to have a, re- I mean, they never did anything like, again, the Horsemen or the New World Order. Uh, again, those really kind of tight-knit groups were more of a Southern thing, and it wasn't until things got interesting that they kind of let DX become its own thing. But uh, the Shield as a group were, pre- I mean, they came out and they destroyed people. Uh, as a unit, they were, I mean, they were hated. Before the match, they were hated after the match, but during the match, everyone was completely involved and invested in what they were doing, because those three guys, as a unit in the ring, created magic. It didn't matter who they were in there with. Uh, Their stuff and their run as a team, look up any of their stuff. Uh, They had a protracted kind of issue with uh, Daniel Bryan and Kane as Team Hell No, and they would cycle in kind of a third guy, and they had some great matches. They had a great uh, WrestleMania match against, I believe it was Randy Orton, The Big Show, and I forget the third guy. Sheamus. I think it was Sheamus. And uh, they were winning all of these matches. They were and they were heels for so much of it because they would come through the crowd. They would beat up the good guys. Uh, They would beat up John Cena. They beat up The Big Show. They beat up The Rock a couple of times. They uh, triple powerbombed The Undertaker through a table, I think. And just, I mean, they destroyed everything. And there's a point to be made that if all you do as a performer is kick ass and take names, even if you're doing it to the good guys, and don't get me wrong, who you do something to is just as important as how you do it, by and large. But if you're presented as that dominant, people will start to cheer for you just because we like cheering for the tough guys who always win. Now, there's a bit, you know, there's risk of backlash there, kind of as we've seen with John Cena and that, you know, perpetually overcoming the odds. Eh, it gets old quickly. But the Shield were, they, never, they very rarely overcame odds. There, uh, there was a Survivor Series match where I think Roman Reigns beat four guys. Ah, uh, jeez. But... By and large, you know, if you're going to be just a no-nonsense bad guy who just kicks ass and takes names, people are going to start to gravitate towards that. It's something within our culture. And they they wound up, I mean, officially turning them to feud with uh, kind of the rem, the revamped evolution uh, following WrestleMania 30. But if you listen to the reactions they were getting, you know, they were good guys uh, before that by a fair stretch. I mean, people really were interested in what they were doing. Uh, Their feud with the Wyatt family was pretty darn awesome, and the Wyatts were also pretty clearly the bad guys uh, on the occasions those six men locked horns. And the crowd was firmly behind the shield. And, of course, there were 
very much so the good guys against Evolution. But as a heel unit, you know, the guys who come up, they walk through the crowd, they beat down, they have the numbers on their side every time. There was a lot to dislike. And again, they benefited a lot from attacking people that the fans were kind of invested in as good guys. They attacked Daniel Bryan and Kane, who were kind of the awkward buddy duo, and people were interested in them. Uh, Again, they attacked The Rock, and The Rock was very much... Uh, people people love The Rock, first of all, because he's The Rock. But they got involved in that a few times, and again, they benefited from who they were attacking as opposed to the tactics they were using. And inevitab- and eventually, you know, people started coming around to liking them, and you know, when you're consistently putting on great matches, uh, people are going to come around to you one way or the other. Uh, I mean, it, it's kind of an old trap in that uh, the four horsemen used to do had kind of the same thing. Don't get me wrong. They would cheat plenty often and use underhanded tactics, but they were just so consistently good that eventually people kind of started cheering them. And people get sick of supporting people who don't win. I mean, don't get me wrong. There were diehard fans of sports franchise, NFL franchises like the Cleveland Browns or the Bengals or the Raiders who are just going to be fans for life. But by and large, you know, if you have so many losing seasons, if you come up short so many times, people are going to gravitate towards something else, something that wins, like the Patriots, for example. I mean, it, it, it's just it's kind of how we are. We like winners as a society, and the Shield was winning and having great matches, and you can beat up uber baby faces as much as you want. Eventually, people are going to start to cheer you. And I mean, which again, they did plenty of underhanded things. They always tended to fight with a numerical advantage when they were ambushing somebody. Uh, they didn't hesitate to occasionally use weapons if it was called for. I mean, they did plenty of heelish things. And I mean, the plan was likely always to get them just over and then have them become good guys. But they were pretty solid heels. And Seth Rollins, in particular, if we're talking strictly contemporary stuff, has been just absolute money as this slimy, smarmy, smug, superior, golden, uh, self-anointed and kind of confirmed by the authority of the golden boy in the future of the promotion. And uh, just he's been great at that. When Dean Ambrose eventually becomes a bad guy, he, his whole portraying himself as a psychotic lunatic will benefit him well in that regard as uh, to the same degree. He'll just be the crazy evil guy who cuts disturbing promos about the things he plans on doing to you. And it won't happen immediately, but again, that's going to happen eventually. And it'll be pretty good, because Dean Ambrose has proven himself to be a pretty darn good character actor. I mean, a a fine wrestler. I mean, he and Seth Rollins, if they would have just given those two guys 25 to 30 minutes on a pay-per-view with no no strings, no... uh, Screwy finish, no Kane, no Jamie Noble, no Joey Mercury, no authority shenanigans, just those two guys without outside interference, without limitations for 25 to 30 minutes, they would put on something that you would be talking about for years. I I have that much faith in what those two can do as performers. But Dean Ambrose also has kind of tapped into a great character in being, you know, unhinged, unstable, and his his kind of commitment to that character is going to serve him very, very well. 
because people are going to become invested in it, and it'll wind up being again whatever side of the fence he happens to be on. I'm personally looking forward to him becoming a bad guy again because he'll be able to do some disturbing stuff both in the ring and on the mic, and it'll be great when he finally gets around to doing that. I mean, right now people love the guy, but you know, any whoever turned on the other two members of the Shield at the end of that. Would have been fine as a bad guy. I mean, it couldn't really be Roman Reigns because he's the one they want to be the next face of the company. So him be, and the WWE still to this day being a babyface company, they like their top guy to be a good guy. Which is, and let's be, and there's nothing wrong with that base philosophy. But with with that philosophy in mind, uh, you know, you want your guy to come up as a good guy. You don't want, you know, again, the face of your company in the future if that's the plan you're going with to make that big turn and be a hated villain. And Seth Rollins has done great things as the golden boy with the briefcase, and he's got, you know, again, the curb stomp that he takes people out with, and he's uh, just a, a real understanding kind of how that character is supposed to be presented. Um, I mean, again, there's... Not perfect, but he, he understands the fundamentals of that character. And, okay, and yeah, Dean Ambrose, again, firm grasp of his character... And when he goes bad, he's going to go bad, and it's going to be awesome uh, for those of you who are fans of, you know, again, villains, as I happen to be. And since you're listening to a podcast, Until Everyone Loves a Bad Guy, I tend to imagine you'll share a few of my proclivities. Now, speaking of groups and being booked correctly, there was the Wyatt family. Boy, was that... Bray Wyatt as a character is pretty darn awesome. I mean, the way he talks. Now, I don't just necessarily mean the fact that he spouts a lot of interesting nonsense, but you know, again, the things he talks about, the way he phrases, uh, the phrases he uses, the way he raises and lowers the tone of his voice, uh, he comes across as that, again, the cult leader that he, that, uh, he was being presented as. And it, uh, some of that early stuff from him was just great. I mean, some of the promos he cut on John Cena were just outstanding. I, I, I mean, that like actually outstanding. Some of the stuff he said about John Cena, he and Jericho had some pretty solid promo work going back and forth. And the unit as a whole was presented very, very strongly and very interestingly because as a kind of compare and contrast, you had the shield who were the band of brothers, uh, the imagery and the notion reinforced courtesy of the, Outfits they wore being represented, being uh, reminiscent of like SWAT tactical gear, just kind of reinforcing that these guys will go to war together. Then you had the two behemoths in Eric Rowan and Luke Harper and Bray Wyatt, and just it, I don't mean this in any sort of a negative sense, but they were presented as kind of those backwoods hillbillies who have been chopping wood their whole life, which kind of by association means they can punch a hole through your chest if they want to. Just big and strong and tough. And you, so visually you had a great contrast, but uh, just, again, presented so very well for so long. And uh, Luke Harper specifically, I've been a fan of his uh, since he was Brody Lee out on the Independence, uh, specifically Chikara, uh, which I'm a fan of, and a little bit of his work in CZW as well. I've been a fan of his for a long time. He's a very talented big man. And he I'm not worried about him now that he's on a singles run. And In fact, if recent indicators are that he'll be feuding with uh, Dolph Ziggler, which will be fine for both men, 
Lee more than athletic enough to kind of hang with Ziggler in that respect, but he's also a big guy who knows how to work with smaller guys, which is something that, given the history of WWE and their like of hiring large men, but again, having plenty of talent that is smaller, uh, a few, some of the guys who came through, again, specifically, I mentioned Chikara, uh, both, uh, again, Brody Lee, as he was known at the time, Luke Harper now, and uh, the former Claudio Castagnoli, now known as Cesaro, both came through there and both worked a lot with guys smaller than them, so they know how to do that. So Harper working with Ziggler won't be a – he won't drop him on his head. He won't – he's unlikely – I won't say won't, but he's unlikely to, you know, botch an athletic spot because he's – done a lot of them before and he knows how to safely work with a smaller guy and I'll be looking forward to that him as a solo act I'm not too worried about he'll he'll be just fine I'm pretty sure he's got the crazy eyes and he knows how to cut a decent promo and he's he's big and he knows how to wrestle I mean he's going to be around for a while I have a lot of faith in uh, his longevity in the company uh, Bray Wyatt feuding with Dean Ambrose right now. They split up the Wyatt family, which I'm still not sold on as being the best idea in the world. I, I loved the unit. I mean, they're all fine. Eric Rowan made a lot of improvements as a wrestler, but as a unit, I felt they were so strong from a presentation, stand, presentation standpoint. I mean, sure, they lost a little bit of their luster when John... I mean, these three guys had beaten the Shield. I think they had a perfect record. I think they beat the Shield twice in six-man tag matches. And, you know, they were presented as, you know, big guys, strong, tough, and John Cena is able to one-on-three defeat them. Now that, oh boy. Cena being able to win some of those encounters doesn't bother me. He's John Cena, fine and dandy. Him being able to solo those three guys uh, doesn't sit right with me. It hasn't for a long time, and it won't. Uh, Probably ever. But uh, Bray Wyatt doing some other things right now. And still still the same character, by and large. They're trying to give him a bit of the supernatural feel. He still gets to cut uh, the promos that... Uh, part of the issue is as his promos, as awesome as they are, need to be supported and substantiated via in-ring action. And that's been lacking a bit uh, for the last while. And that's something that has to change in the near future. If he's going to you know, keep uh, generating some interest going forward. Not stall out. Um, okay. I need to touch briefly, I feel, on Brock Lesnar, the absentee WWE champion. But he, Brock, is right now a heel through pretty much just two, by two means. One, first and foremost, mind you, association with Paul Heyman. Because Paul Heyman is one of the easiest characters and potentially people. I've never met him, so I can't speak to this, but... As a as an on-screen character, he is one of the most easily disliked human beings in the history of that promotion. The man walks on screen, and even if you're not familiar with him, you dislike him based on his look, the smile that he can give, and you know the, what he can do with his uh, facial features. And then he opens his mouth. And don't get me wrong, it, uh, the man is one of the better promos going right now. I mean. If you'd call him the best, I wouldn't argue with you too, you know, again, too much. But in terms of, uh, sorry, I wouldn't argue too much if you said he's the best. He's had some off nights, some nights where he's kind of phoned it in. But him phoning it in is still better than a lot of the guys really trying. And so Brock, via 
via association with Paul Heyman is a bad guy. And if you're a fan of John Cena, the fact that he crushed him, I mean, good grief. That match where he took the belt from John Cena uh, at SummerSlam, I'm pretty sure. Oh, that was brutal. I mean, he just beat the dog snot out of John Cena. And that's not something you see. Uh, and he's going to be a great monster heel if the promotion books him properly. Again, this is this is not a promotion that really understands dominant heels, by historically speaking. Every now and then you'll get some that work. Uh, Randy Orton on occasion had, has had decent runs on top as a heel. Triple H's infamous like three-year stretch being the only storyline on Raw where he was the main focus. Look, don't get me wrong, there might have been a bit of ego stroking on his part going on there. At the same time, he was so effective at it that there's a lot of residual enmity going on right now among fans of professional wrestling because of that. And if you're that effective a heel at that point in time that you've still got heat for it, he did something right. I mean, don't get me wrong, if you were watching week in and week out, might have been a tad boring and repetitive, but... A little bit of that is not the worst thing in the world, and when it serves to kind of reinforce your dislike for a character... I mean, again, the fact that Triple H still has, again, heat, there's people still aggravated over that stretch of time, means he did that, and he did that very, very well. But Lesnar is monster champion, uh, he and Cena are going to have a third match, and I'm worried they'll put the title back on John Cena, I really am. Because, first of all, I'm a fan of Brock Lesnar, and I have been since I first laid eyes on the man in a professional wrestling ring. I've been a fan. I was a fan of MMA before he moved over into it, but I was happy to see him succeed there. I'm happy that he's back. I just, I like Brock Lesnar. And him as a dominant heel champion can work. Uh, He just, well, first of all, he has to beat John Cena. Then you need to pair him up with a... If you don't want him to take a backward step, if he's going to be a monster heel uh, in the same vein as Vader or uh, actually Scott Steiner had to run as WCW champion, which if you listen to that episode, Gavin uh, Napier of the Casual Heroes talked about for a little bit. Uh, if he's going to be that monster champion, a big, uh, big part of getting him heat is going to be the guy he's in the ring with. And he's going to need to be in there with someone who, as a good guy, is just over like Rover. And, you know, John Cena is with about half the audience. Unfortunately, the other half think he's the number one heel. And the, therein lies, again, the dichotomy of fan base right now. But Brock Lesnar, the destroyer, the conqueror. I mean, honestly, the fact that he doesn't show up to television every week is not a negative thing. We as fans especially kind of around my age group, got really, really spoiled for a long period of time with exposure to the champion and title matches every week type thing. And Brock being off TV is not the end of the world. If anything, it should be exploited to get him more heat. Bring up that he's not there. Have Paul Heyman come out and rub everyone's nose in it. Oh, you're, you know, you want to see your, you know, the champion doesn't have to be here and, you know, you can even insert whatever city this is that he happens to think negatively of. Or you people don't deserve it. There's no one deserving of it in the locker room. There's a lot of different ways you could go with it to make the fact that he's not there work to his advantage. In addition to it being special when he does show up, you can generate animosity based on the fact that he isn't there every week. 
it's I feel it's a missed opportunity with how they're kind of presenting him as champion right now and a really sad missed opportunity because you could be generating a lot of enmity towards him that people will pay to vent. He's not going to if he's not there every week and you're angry about it, you're angry at him, but he's still a special attraction. People are going to buy the network. They're going to pay the to see him live. They're going to sh- Turn, they're going to change the channel. They'll buy the pay-per-view, whatever it happens to be. You could be generating heat for the champion, and at the moment, you're not. It's just kind of a lost opportunity at this point in time, but plenty of chances to fix it going forward. You know, I, I have some faith in the people over there. Not a lot, but I have some. All right, and that is going to bring me to John Cena. Uh, to anyone listening live, thank you very much. There's about four minutes of live time left, so again, if you would like to call in, uh, the number is 323-657-0901. And again, you have four minutes to kind of get on the air. I'm only doing this one for an hour, and probably a l- I'll go a little bit over because I want to talk about John Cena right now. Uh, but if you're listening live, it'll cut off in four minutes, and that's why. And I'll uh, you can follow that link again probably about 30 minutes later, and it'll have the whole show. So again, anyone listening live, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Now, John Cena is... And a very interesting case in that I don't think there's a more polarizing figure in the history of professional wrestling. You have had tweeners, and you have, which is, uh, for those not familiar with the uh, lingo there, it's a character that is not quite a bad guy, not quite a good guy, kind of riding that line between the two, hence tweener. Uh, you've had cool heels that kind of become good guys. Uh, Kevin Nash, pretty much every time he's presented that way. Uh, you've had you know good guys that get negative reactions for various reasons due to you know maybe it's the staleness of their act, uh, maybe it's people just kind of wanting to move on. Again, Hogan and WCW was kind of that way. Uh, there's been apathy towards Randy Orton as a face at times. Uh, Sheamus right now kind of as a face. You know, there's just you've had things where there's been a shifting alignment or a shifting crowd response. In the case of John Cena, that's not that's not true. You have the group of people who cheer John Cena and you have the group of people who boo John Cena. And you they're divided pretty clearly along uh, gender and age lines, but it's odd that one guy being booked one way is simultaneously the most over good guy and the most over bad guy. I mean, there's constant discussion about John Cena's inevitable heel turn. Now, on the one hand, that's and that's nothing but an eventuality. Of course, he will become a bad guy at some point. Hulk Hogan was a good guy for decades before he became a bad guy. Uh, Steve Austin was a good guy for a long period of time uh, before he became a bad guy for a short period of time. I mean... It is an inevitability in the world of professional wrestling that John Cena will become a villain. That's again, that's going to happen. It's an it's an eventuality. I don't think anyone has had an entire career with one single alignment. Uh there okay, there is one exception to that and that's Ricky Steamboat. Uh Ricky the Dragon Steamboat was apart from a brief period of time early in his career when he was a bad guy. By and large, for his entire professional wrestling career, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat has been a good guy. And obviously, and that's where the money is with him, he just screams of good guy all over. But apart from him, eh, maybe Bruno, I'm not as familiar with Bruno's entire career, but 
everyone goes back and forth a little bit. I mean, even you know, some of the greatest villains. Uh, Nick Bockwinkle kind of became a good guy for a while. Uh, Roddy Piper, who, again, famously had so much heat that people tried to kill him, became a good guy. Uh, Bobby Heenan had stretches where he was a good guy. And again, it is inevitable that there will be that shift. The issue is right now, John Cena is the number one heel in the company with half the audience and the number one babyface with the other half. Why? I mean, there's nothing necessarily that has to change there. He's just being booked the way he is. He is the center, and the fans allow him to be the center. Now, he said something on a podcast, I think it was Steve Austin's, uh, his episode on the Steve Austin show, where he brought up that you know, the fact that in any given Cena match, for an extended period of time, you will have the dueling chants going throughout the arena. Half the audience, give or take, will chant, let's go Cena, and then the other half will chant, Cena sucks. And they will go back and forth with this, as crowds do. They like to be involved in the product, and they should be. Here's the thing that he brought up, though, is that this chant and this mentality completely ignores whoever he's in the ring with. He could be in there with a bag of doorknobs, and you're going to get that same chant. And if you're the other guy, if you're The Miz, if you're Cesaro, if you're Brock Lesnar or Randy Orton or whoever... Bray Wyatt, if you're in there with John Cena and the crowd is solely focused on him, that should anger you because they don't care about you at that point. The only thing they care about is John Cena. Now, whether they're cheering him or booing him, they have a deep emotional reaction to him, and whoever he's in the ring with is an afterthought. And if you're in that position, that should anger you and you should want to fix it. But the fact that John Cena, being the good guy, overcoming the odds, has created such a this kind of vitriolic response from half the audience, while at the same time endearing him and letting him be the hero to the other half, I don't see why you'd have to change his booking. I don't see why you have to change him at all right now, because he's the most over guy in the world, just on the complete opposite ends of the spectrum, depending on who you're talking to. I don't know of anyone in the history of professional wrestling that has that same dynamic that has that that is again superman and the hero to half and just everything that the other half of the audience hates and it's really really interesting to see him and his presentation and his response because i mean as a heel he is over as a heel for a lot of the same reason that Bob Backlund was over as a heel with the Mr. Backlund gimmick uh, in the early 90s, uh, late 80s, early 90s, because he is just a representation of things that a certain section of the audience regard as hokey or passe or cliched, and that is, you know, the hustle, loyalty, and respect, never give up, I'm going to keep fighting, and I'm going to overcome the odds and always do the right thing, and just kind of the Boy Scout mentality. And there's a large segment of the audience that rejects that, finds it cartoonish and stupid. Now, the flip side is, there's a segment of the audience that gravitates towards that and wants to take that on and live vicariously through someone who does that. And it's just, there's such a huge rift as far as John Cena being a good guy or a bad guy. But as a character... He is, first of all, very consistent, and second of all, 
he's just done a great job with it. I mean, that segment to that segment of the audience, everything he does is the best thing that a heel could do. When he talks about never giving up and never backing down, they hate it because it's the same thing they've heard over and over again. And to the other half, it's inspirational because it's what you should it's what you should be doing. You should try to be that way. You should try you should work hard. You should never give up and you should always keep trying. I mean and and it's just so fascinating just from a kind of an intellectual standpoint to observe how people react so dramatically differently. But John Cena, right now, is debatably, simultaneously, the number one face and the number one heel. And it's a really, really interesting thing. And again, to anyone who's interested in that that type of stuff, look it up. Listen to his reactions. Watch the crowd dynamics. It's, again, it's very, very interesting. And it's very fun, too. I mean, don't get me I know there are a lot of people who are, you know, kind of bored by it and dislike John Cena as a character. Viol- Again, there's a lot of dislike there. But if he's being booked the way he is, then he's just the heel for that segment. And he's being booked perfectly because nobody's more over as a bad guy with those guys than John Cena. I don't think anybody could be more over as a bad guy with that half of the audience than John Cena is right now. Uh, it, it's really interesting to look at that. All right, but I have talked on for a little over an hour here, and John Cena really just as kind of the pinnacle of and you just, the interesting study of, well, he's a hero to half the audience, and the other half of the audience want to see him hit by a bus. It's a, I mean, you don't, I, I've never seen or heard of anything like that particular scenario in the world of professional wrestling. And I will just, and I mean, I imagine it'll happen again, probably when he turns, uh, when John Cena shifts his alignment, then all of the kids will start booing him for selling out and turning on them and whatnot. And all the people who are booing him right now, We'll start cheering him because he'll start doing all the things that they think are cool and he'll say things that they think are cool and they will begin cheering the heel Cena and we'll just have the same, again, that's the same divide, just half are gonna, the other half is going to be booing and the other half is going to be cheering. And it's it'll be really interesting when that eventually happens. Of course, it is possible for John Cena to get enough, if he turns bad and really commits to it, he could get everyone to hate him. Uh, that's entirely possible. Uh, but that is going to wrap up this particular edition of Everyone Loves a Bad Guy with a discussion of the most interesting case study in uh, good guy, bad guy alignment going on in professional wrestling right now. Uh, I'm Robert Winfrey, everybody. Uh, you can find me in the MMA Zone of 411mania.com, providing live coverage. If you're listening to this close to its original air date, this coming Saturday, uh, November the 15th, I will have live coverage of UFC 180, Fabricio Verdum versus Mark Hunt for the interim heavyweight title as your main event. So stop on by, say hello for that. I have a column that should be going up in the near future. Uh, I talk about MMA gatekeepers because Michael Bisbing had a fight last week and why we should all cut them a bit of a break. And I will be back here next week. Uh, again, I'm going to try and get this thing back on a weekly schedule. We just had an odd couple of weeks in a row right there. So thank you all so very much for listening. I appreciate it. Without you, I'm just talking to myself, and that's not fun. Uh, it really isn't. So, 
thank you all again for listening. I'm going to remind you that without a great villain, all of your heroes are just strange men in tights. Uh, take care of yourselves, and I'll see you next week. Thank you for listening. So say goodnight to the bad guys.